You know, as we've been going through the Gospel of John for the last few months, actually since uh, September, we've been uh, working our way through the scroll, and uh, I hope, I really hope that you've seen one thing so far, and one thing very clearly, and it is that we need Jesus. We need Jesus for for everything, all of us, and in more ways, I think, than we could ever possibly realize, we see Jesus. That's what, we need Jesus. That's what John is is showing us what he wants us to see. So many different ways John shows us this in the gospel. I mean, from the get-go, he shows us that we need uh, Jesus for, for knowledge. He's the word. He's the one. He's how we know about God. We need Jesus for life, this, this abundant life that, that only Jesus can give. He, we need um, Jesus for sustenance. We, we need uh, Jesus to be our guide. We need Jesus for, for all of these different things. And it's, it's important for us to be spending time in a book like the Gospel of John and, and, and getting this message over and over because it's so easy for us uh, as Christians to kind of slip into this way of thinking that relegates Jesus uh, to just being part of our life. You know, that, that we just need Jesus for uh, part of what we need, namely the forgiveness of sins. You know, we get in this way of thinking that, yeah, he, he, he saves me from condemnation. He makes me right with God. And that is, that's wonderful. But then that's just kind of where we can, can leave him. As just playing that role in our life. As, as our Savior. Not also our King. And our Prophet. Do those, do those roles kind of sound familiar that I just, I just said? They're uh, priest, king, and prophet. Those three titles have kind of been the traditional way that theologians have used to talk about the three offices of Christ. Have any of you heard this before? These are kind of the three distinct roles that Jesus plays uh, in relation to humanity. So the one priest there, this would be the, kind of what I just described. This would be his role as Savior. This would be Jesus' role as that, that ultimate go-between for, for God and, and humanity. The one who makes peace between sinners and, and the Father through his work on the cross. And this is glorious. This role right here, this is something uh, that, that really we should rejoice in and, and marvel at every single day of our lives. But as the Bible makes very clear, and really the, the book of John especially, Jesus is more than just our priest. He is also our king and, and, our, and our prophet. And, and it, we, we should rejoice and marvel at these roles as well because we need them just as much as we need Jesus to be our priest. Now, king there would mean, like, ultimate authority. The, the king of kings, right? The, the, our, our, our ultimate shepherd, um, our, our protector, our ruler. This is who Jesus is, according to the Gospel of John. And, and then the prophet, that third role that's up there, this would be his role as teacher, really, with a capital T. Rabbi, they call him over and over uh, in, in, in the gospel here. He's, he's the mouthpiece of God, unlike any other rabbi. He is the authoritative voice who, who tells us uh, right from wrong, good from evil, truth from error, and really how to, how to navigate this uh, confusing, sinful world in, in, in which we find ourselves. This is who Jesus is. Our priest, our king, our prophet. Do we remember this about him? Do we, do we rejoice in each of these aspects of Jesus' character as good news, as gospel? 
You know, I really think this is one of the, the, the key reasons that, that gets me excited about teaching the passage that's before us this morning, John chapter 7, 1 through 24, is because what we see right here is just a resounding affirmation of what I've listed here as the third office of Christ, his role as our prophet, capital P. What we see right here in this, in this passage that we're going to be looking at is Jesus acting and speaking as the one with perfect knowledge, supernatural insight, the only one with true authority to speak into matters of right and wrong with any accuracy. And for us uh, who have the ears to hear him, this is good news. This is, this is the, the best news, gospel, because we need Jesus for this. There's no other way. It's what I hope we see as we go through this. You know, one of those, uh, really the most, of the most basic fundamental questions that an- every human being uh, must answer as we try to figure out our way how to, to live in life is this. What is right and what is wrong? What is, what is right and wrong? How do you tell the difference? Now, pretty much everybody operates within these categories to some degree. And most of us just sort of uh, have answered this question here sort of intuitively. You know, uh, many just go with maybe how you were raised, you know, what your parents from, from early on, you know, they told you what was right. They, they told you what was wrong, and, and, you know, that's just what you do. You know, sometimes when people uh, do something wrong, they say, hey, I wasn't raised that way. I, I'm sorry. You know, as, you know that, that's the authoritative standard. How you were raised tells you what right and wrong is. Uh, other people go uh, pretty much just with the prevailing winds of culture. You know, basically what, what most people around you agree is, is right, you're going to think is right. What most people around you think is wrong you're going to think is wrong, and we just kind of uh, drift with which whatever way um, public opinion is, is, is going at the time. This is why we see such differences between the values, say, of 150 years ago and, and now. And if you go 150 years before that, they were you know, different. You know, things change in cultures, value-wise. I think probably the most common in our culture right now is, is just kind of uh, an, an intuitive way of figuring out. Intuition, following your gut, you know, would be another way to say that. Kind of what feels right. You know, what feels wrong, this is how a lot of people um, make those, those value judgments. I did something and I felt awful about it. I'm not going to do that again. I did something, didn't bother me at all. I'm going to keep doing that, right? So the result of all these different ways that we have of trying to figure out, you know, what is right and, and what is wrong is pretty much uh, what we see in our culture right now as a result of this. We see confusion, See polarization. See a lot of uh, frustration when people don't see things the same way you do. We see a lot of uh, mockery, vilifying those people who uh, disagree with what you think is right or what you think is wrong. Because the obvious problem is that even though so many of us use all of these same methods to figure out what is right and what is wrong, we don't all end up at the same place. We all end up at very different places for the most part. And not just on on uh, minor issues, on very significant issues. Like, like, think about how polarized our nation is right now in terms of, of politics and worldview. It, you know, if you took activists from opposite extreme ends of the spectrum on almost 
any issue that people would you know, want to protest about right now. If you took two people from two different sides, each holding their signs, each really, really angry, and interviewed them privately, you know, what you would discover is that each of them is firmly and, and equally convinced in their own minds that they are fighting for what is right. For, for, for what is just, for what they perceive as, as fair and, and good. They're convinced of this. But obviously they ended up in extremely different places. So which one is right? How can you even tell? How could these two people possibly even have a discussion about this if those are our only options for figuring out what is what, right and what is wrong, the things I listed? This is why our passage before us today is so needed and so beautiful. In the final verse of our passage today, Jesus offers this command. This is kind of like what, what he wants ringing in the ears of, of all the people who are hearing him as he moves to the next part of this discussion. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Right there meaning just is another way you could have put translated that judge with just judgment meaning in a type of judgment that corresponds to the objective realities of right and wrong that come from God established from from the beginning of creation this is what Jesus calls us to do in our passage this is the command and and in this passage he not only calls us to do it he shows us how to do it and it's a way of knowing right and wrong that's really that goes beyond any of those other ways that i just listed because it is a way of judging right from wrong that is rooted in him our prophet don't trust your own judgment is a way you could summarize this don't trust your own judgment on these matters instead defer to the judgment of Jesus. That's a refrain that's going to be repeated throughout this morning. Don't trust your own judgment. Instead, defer to the judgment of Jesus because he's the only one who can. Don't don't trust what you think your gut is telling you. Don't trust uh, what your parents may have told you. Don't don't trust what your culture is, is telling you right now about right and wrong, just and unjust. Instead, Defer to, our, to, to Jesus, our prophet, capital P, because he is the only one who can do this right here. He's the only one who can judge with right judgment. It's going to come so clear as we go through the passage. And this right here, this key principle of deferring to the judgment of Jesus, this is why um, Christians, we, we Christians can end up in some very strange places, morally speaking, in the, in the eyes of people around us. Maybe you're here and you're, you're not a Christian and you've wondered why it is that Christians uh, take... Uh, such, you know, really firm stands on things like sexuality. Bizarre stands in, in the eyes of many in our culture. Or, or things like uh, forgiveness, non-retaliation, uh, our view of materialism, all of, all of that sort of stuff. You know, wh- why Christians end up where we end up is, is because of this verse right here. Because we are called at all times not to trust our own judgment not to go with the winds of culture, but instead to defer to the judgment of Jesus, our prophet. If he says something is, is, is right and wrong in, in his word, then we follow that, no, no matter what. This passage shows us why it's absolutely necessary to do this. This passage shows us why, when we do this, we end up not only with clarity, but we end up with hope. So we're going to go after all of this. So, 
Let's listen to the words of Jesus, our prophet, starting right now in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, these technically his half-brothers, right? These would be the offspring of Mary and Joseph. They said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. There's a lot going on in this opening scene right here. Let's try to ex- explain some of it. First, the, um, the after this part that, that shows really the chronological relationship between this chapter and uh, the, the chapter before, where, where Jesus fed the 5,000, where he walked on water, all that. The stuff in this chapter takes place after this, actually six months after this. Uh, there's, uh, the, uh, we, we find that out with that bit there about the Feast of Booths. kind of gives us a... Uh, a landmark, chronologically speaking. All of chapter 6, we know, took place around the Feast of Passover, like springtime. And all of chapter 7 takes place around the Feast of Booths, which would be late fall. So there's like, you know, there's a six-month span between the two, a six-month span of really like action-packed ministry and stuff that John sums up with that one little phrase, Jesus went about in Galilee. And I love this because, I mean... You almost got to laugh. If if you've read the other three Gospels, uh, you know that there is a ridiculous amount of of ministry that happens in that six-month span that John just, you know, breezes over right here. You've got healings. You've got uh, famous teachings and discourses. You've got Jesus, you know, casting out demons. He feeds 4,000 people as well after he had already fed the 5,000. You've got the transfiguration. So we're talking some major stuff right here that John was there for. And John just says, yeah, Jesus, you know, he went about in Galilee during the six. It's just the master of understatement is, is John. I love it. Anyway, the reason that Jesus stayed up here north in Galilee this entire time and not in the south around Jerusalem is because the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, were seeking to kill him. So here's, here's a map, kind of shows how this uh, fits together geographically speaking. Galilee, that's way up there uh, to the north where Jesus has been, again, for the, you know, the, the last year or so. And Jerusalem down there is where uh, the feast is happening. That is also where the Jews are seeking to kill him. And the reason that these Jews are, are still so angry with Jesus is actually, it's explained all the way back in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he, that's Jesus, breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So really, catch the two things there 
that, that, that's motivating the Jews in this whole time. You're going to see a lot of tension between the Jewish leaders and, and, and Jesus throughout this, throughout this scene today. This is what's motivating. One, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. That would be the guy by the, the pool, take up your mat and walk, all that. That was technically breaking the Sabbath because that was doing work. And he told this guy to do work carrying his mat. They did not like that. And then two, the, really the big one, he was claiming to be equal with God by calling God his own father. That's, that's blasphemy in, in the eyes of the Jews. That is a capital offense. Again, this, this happened over a year ago at, at this point. But some towns uh, have, have very long memories. There's actually still towns in, in Grant County that my dad is, is, gets a little nervous when we drive through after an incident with a brush fire nearly 20 years ago. So if you, want, if you ask him about it, he won't tell you a thing about it. So don't even bother. But... You know, some places have long memories. The heat is still on Jesus down in Jerusalem. So he has been operating up north this whole time. His brothers, and I know it's weird. Some of, some of you think like, wait, Jesus has brothers? Yeah, this is pretty much all we know about them. Well, actually, we, learn, we do learn more about uh, his brothers in the book of Acts. One of them, uh, James, actually goes on to be a, a prominent leader of the church, but they don't believe in him when he's alive. Tells you a little hint there about the significance of the resurrection later on and how that changed people's perspectives about Jesus. But yes, he has brothers, and they think that he needs to get out of town and he needs to go down to Jerusalem and start raising his profile a little bit. Leave here and go to Judea. That's what they say. Like, stop doing all these, you know, signs and wonders. Jesus is doing all this amazing stuff, you know, the stuff that John doesn't directly mention here, but he's healing people, doing amazing things. And you know, why are you doing all this up like in Podunk, Galilee, with no one but like hillbillies and, and llamas to see? I don't even know if they had llamas. Goats, you know, they, they just, why are you doing all this up here? Go down to Jerusalem. That's, that's the power center. That's, that's where a Messiah should, should launch his campaign, right? Go show yourself to the world, is, is what they say. And of course, the brothers also realize that the Feast of Booths would be the perfect time to do this. Also, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, this uh, Feast of Booths, it was, it was the biggest Jewish festival of the year. This was like uh, their equivalent of Christmas, really. I think that's a good comparison because this wasn't necessarily the biggest feast in terms of theological importance, but it definitely was the biggest in terms of celebration. The people went nuts with, with, with this thing. Because remember, this was um, an, an agrarian culture. They were all farmers, for, for the most part. And even if they weren't farmers, it was an agriculture-based culture. So nothing was bigger or more important than for these people, economically speaking, than the harvest. And this festival was a harvest festival. It's one that God established back in Exodus, where uh, the Jews give thanks for the, the crops God has given them, the provision for another year. And then they go outside and they live in these little booths that they set up, that they like make out of sticks and, you know, the little leafy structures, they're called, and they sleep outside in them for a week of, of feasting and, and celebration. It's a reminder that, you know, that they're kind of sojourners and pilgrims on this earth, that God also tabernacled among them uh, in, in the tent, uh, in, the, in the wilderness, that uh, a reminder that rich and poor are on the same status before God because they all go outside. They all just make stuff, you know, out of sticks. Uh, you could think of it as a camping festival. That's actually what one Jewish scholar, how he describes this, he calls this the Jewish camping festival. So you can see why it would be you know, so fun. The harvest is over. Everybody's like, they're feeling great because the, the hay is in the barn. They're seeing 
You know, friends and family that they only see once a year. And, you know, here they are. Everyone's showing up in Jerusalem. They're feasting. They're, they're trading food. They're worshiping, giving thanks to God. I mean, any boy who has ever built a fort in the woods knows this, that this would be like the best holiday ever. You know? They love it. High spirits, packed with people. This would be the perfect time for Jesus to share his message, just launch himself into the stratosphere in terms of name recognition. Go, they say. Everyone will be there. Show yourself to the world. This is the perfect time. No, it isn't, Jesus says. That's actually how he answers the brother twice in this statement. He says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet fully come. Just on either side of his answer to them there. And, and what that, that underscores there is just, I mean, the total difference between Jesus sees himself and his, his mission and his relation to the world in the way that the brothers see it. You know, his, his brothers, basically, by their, by their uh, statement here and Jesus' answer to them, they see Jesus' mission as one to grow in, in popularity and, and prestige. That's why it is time to go to Jerusalem. This is the time to do that. But Jesus sees his mission as one to go and die. The cross. That's what Jesus is working toward this, this entire time in the book of John. It's really also what he means throughout the book of John when he talks about the time or his hour, this thing which is repeated, this phrase throughout the book, that hour is his crucifixion. The world cannot hate you, he tells his brothers. Because, you know, you guys, you're sharing the world's basic values. You're operating along the same system, this desire for applause, this prestige, honor, prosperity, all of that stuff. The opposite of, is true of Jesus. He's going from a totally different value system. He says, it, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He's basically telling you, his brothers, dudes, you guys, this, this plan would completely backfire. You think that you know, if I go show myself to the world, the more they're going to love me. No. The, the more the world finds out about me, the more the world hears my message, the more they're going to hate me because of what I'm saying about them, that the works of the world are evil. That is not a popular message. Repent is, is not a message that anybody wants to hear because in the eyes of Jesus, the judge, the works of the world are evil. This is just a fundamental difference in, in, in mission between what his brothers think and what he thinks. Jesus did not come into the world to affirm the world. Jesus came into the world to save the world. And to do that, he must die. So, it was not the Father's time yet for Jesus to go to the cross. He's had that planned from the depths of eternity. It's not going to happen sooner or later than the Father's plan calls for. So Jesus remained in Galilee for the time being. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, and we don't know how much time elapsed here necessarily, then he, that's Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private, in keeping with his his motives and the Father's plan with this. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. 
So I think what we should see today, right, right here in this exchange, you know, that first one Jesus had with his brothers, and then right here, the murmurings of the crowd at the feast, really the first reason that we should all defer to the judgment of Jesus instead of trusting in our own judgment, and that's he is immune to the human desire for human approval. Jesus is immune to that. That's really the motive that, that's driving his brothers, right? That's why they want him to go to the feast and make this you know, big, splashy entrance and all that, is that they value applause. They value fame and the affirmation, approval of their, their fellow human beings. And, and again, all people do. We all desire approval probably more than we realize. And this was clouding their judgment of who Jesus, is, Jesus was and what he was all about. John puts this very strongly in those previous verses. He said, For not even his brothers believed in him. That was, that was the extent of their confusion. That, that, I mean, that is the power of this desire for human approval. It was totally clouding their judgment of Jesus to the point that they didn't even really believe in him. And then you couple that with the converse power of the human fear of disapproval or punishment in verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, it says, no one spoke openly about him. You know, our fear of censure is a major influence in our evaluation of right and wrong. We are far, far less likely to adopt beliefs that will lead to direct punishment or social disapproval and far more likely to adopt beliefs that will gain us acceptance or this feeling like we're... We're, we're in the majority. These are just, I mean, these are basic human realities, and they absolutely influence our day-to-day evaluation of right and wrong. I, I, I remember reading about a study done kind of along these lines regarding a very uh, trivial decision that human beings make, and that's whether or not you choose to leave your towel on the, uh, or yeah, whether or not you choose to leave your towel on the bathroom floor when you're in a hotel room so it can be taken away and laundered, or whether you hang it up on the rack, and use it again. You guys know what I'm talking about? How hotels often have this program, you know, where you can just keep reusing your towel and they, they won't wash it. Well, what this study did, you know, hotels want more people to participate in this and not have to, you know, wash that many towels and all that, save money, save detergent, save, save the environment, you know. They, they tried all these different little signs to try to get more of their guests to participate in, in, in this program. And and so they, they tried ones that had, like, a lot of environmental statistics, right, in some of the rooms. And they also tried ones that had uh, warnings about climate change, ones that had, you know, statistics about the cost of, of laundering, ones uh, that had, like, kind of did a humor approach and, like, tried to do, like, a little joke about, you know, this will be less work for your maid or, you know, you know something like that. But do you know which sign was far and away the most effective? Head and shoulders. It was one that simply said this. 87% of our guests choose to participate in the Reuse Your Towel program. 87%. Now, I'm fairly certain when I, when I read about this that, that that percentage was just completely made up for the purposes of, of the study. You know, but they, they just what they wanted to put out there was a percentage that would make you the distinct minority if you chose not to hang up your towel on the rack. And you're like, you look at that and you're like, I don't want to be one of those losers and slobs who just throws their, you know, that 13% that throws their towel on the floor. I don't want anyone to think of that about me at all. We want to be part of the majority. We want that approval. 
that feeling of unspoken disapproval would, would frighten us. And I mean, this is when it comes to towels. You know, how, how much more does this influence us when we're thinking about major issues of right and wrong? That desire to be part of the affirmed majority. That fear even of the tacit, uh, unspoken disapproval that comes from not kind of going along with the crowd on these things. You know, every single one of us, whether we're we're Christians or non-Christians, we are far more influenced by the opinions of the crowds around us uh, than we would care to admit. Well, thank God that he has sent us a prophet. Capital P. Thank God that he has given us Jesus, this this prophet who is immune to the desire for for human approval, this prophet who has absolutely no fear of, of human punishment, a prophet who can tell us with utter clarity the path that we should walk. This is why you should not trust your own judgment, but you should defer to the judgment of Jesus. And we see his courage in the very next verse. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. I mean, putting himself out there in the open. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, it might be kind of hard for us as English readers to pick up uh, on on the irony that that John is bringing out right here, because the Greek idiom that, that they're using for saying that he... Uh, has learning right there it is technically that he has his letters that's how they would say that you had an education that a man has his letters you know he kind of it's like saying someone knows their abcs but this was talking more about formal education and they're amazed apparently that jesus has this like they know that he hasn't studied under any of the rabbis they would have heard of him they would have seen him you know here in in, in jerusalem from time to time they also know i mean he's way up from redneck galilee you know, you can't get this kind of education from Nazareth Community College, right? That he's showing off here. They don't, they don't turn out scholars like that. So they're amazed. They're, they're, they're perplexed. But we, as readers of John's gospel from verse 1 all the way up to this point, we see the irony of this, the deep, deep irony. Because we know that Jesus, he's not really from Nazareth, is he? He's from God. That is so clear at the beginning of the book that Jesus is sent here and through the incarnation he is the incarnate word of god he's the incarnate wisdom of god the, the logos the from which we get our word logic really the uh, the means by which god has created the entire universe he is the word and these people are marveling that the word knows his letters you see, you see the irony there? Verse 16, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Again, hey, a reminder, I'm not really from Nazareth here. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So again, this first part right here, this is Jesus' answer to why he has such great learning and can, you know, 
teach with the best of the rabbis, and that's because he gets that learning directly from God. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's it. And then he follows this up by giving yet another reason to the crowd right here why all of us, really, should question our own judgment. It's because we should also question our will, what it is we really want. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So this is a question of judgment. Is Jesus teaching, is he really from God or is he, you know, teaching on his own authority? And what Jesus is doing is calling out the crowd's inability to do this right here, getting to the heart of the matter, really. Because the problem is not the content of of, of his teaching. The problem in their discerning of it is the twisted motives of the crowd. If, If they truly wanted to know God, if they were truly just, you know, humbly seeking the Father, desiring to hear his voice, then they would accept the teaching of Jesus. But they don't. And the fundamental problem, again, is the self-orientation of their will. That's what Jesus says right here. The problem is your will. It's not your ears. It's your heart. And this isn't just the crowd's problem. This is a human problem. Humans are essentially selfish. This is is a clear teaching in the Bible that fallen humans, we who are in our, our sinful, like apart from God state, we are essentially oriented towards ourselves, toward seeking our own needs and our own agenda first. That's just our basic response. It's, it's like this from birth. You know, we're, we're hardwired uh, this way by our, by our sin nature. That's put ourselves before others to seek our own glory, to like fight for our own good first and foremost, to say mine. You know, if you don't believe this, I, I have a challenge for you. It's to go... Volunteer in the tiny treasures class for the next six weeks, okay? My sister-in-law, John Tall, would be thrilled. They're looking for volunteers. And this would give you a first-hand view into sinfulness from birth. They're all like two and three years old. My son is in there. He'd be happy to model some of this for you. But it's, it's just the way it is. It's the sad reality. And even though, you know, here we are, we're all past that age, we get a little bit better at masking this selfishness as we get older, kind of putting a, you know, a more noble spin on it because we realize it kind of looks unseemly to be selfish, but it's still right there. It's under the surface. It is absolutely clouding our judgment, making it easy for us to justify what's good or convenient for us as right, Uh, things that would be difficult for us or unpopular or unseemly. It's really then easy for us to classify as optional. What Jesus is saying right here is is really what um, postmodern philosophers have been echoing in recent decades, and that is that when it comes down to it, belief formation, especially about right and wrong, is not a strictly rational process. I mean, more often than not, in the the process of, of us trying to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves, the will takes priority over the mind what we want for ourselves, what we want to happen, and then what we do is we marshal beliefs in support of our will, in support of what we want. This is the human condition. This is why it's so hard to accurately evaluate our our own beliefs or change the beliefs of others. We, We deceive ourselves. Our foolish hearts are darkened, Paul says. 
We're, we're blinded by our sin. Therefore, it is actually impossible for human beings on our own to judge right from wrong with any accuracy, any consistency, because our own sinful, selfish will distorts everything. But again, praise God that he has sent us a prophet. Capital P. A prophet unbound by the the bondage of the human will to selfishness and, and sin. A prophet whose will is solely focused on fulfilling the righteous plan of God. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority and seek, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him. That is what Jesus is seeking. The glory of God in him. There is no falsehood. That word true right there could also be uh, maybe better translated as authentic. Or, or genuine. This is who Jesus is at his core. He's real. He's, he's the only pure human who has, who has ever lived. The only human whose will, first and foremost, undividedly, is to seek the glory of God, no matter what it takes. Because, again, in our wills, there's always all sorts of falsehood, self-deception that leads us to believe things that, that really just get us what we want in the first place. But not in Jesus. In him, there is no falsehood. None. So don't trust your own judgment. Instead, defer to the judgment of Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus continues, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Whoa, where did that come from? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Just basically meaning, What are you talking about? Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, that would be the healing of that guy on the Sabbath, you know, over a year ago, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? A lot going on right here, again, but, but in this whole exchange, the thing you should zero in is, on is that topic of the law. That is really what takes the stage. This would be um, the law of Moses that, that Jesus is talking about, the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, really the binding rules, covenant, covenant obligations of the Jewish people. The law which, according to Jesus, no one in the crowd actually keeps. Now, again, there's irony in this that, that, that Jesus is bringing about. Do you remember why the leaders want to kill Jesus? It's because he broke that law of Moses by healing a man on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus say here? He says, basically, well, you guys break the Sabbath all the time. That's what, that's what that whole bit about circumcision is about. Because when a child is, is circumcised on the Sabbath... That's technically doing work. That would be breaking the Sabbath, right? You have to do some work to to circumcise the kid. Yet the Jews do this all the time, Jesus is pointing out. If the eighth day after birth falls on the Sabbath, they have to circumcise that kid on that day. Whether it's the Sabbath or not, it's the eighth day. Circumcision gets the tiebreaker of priority. Well, how much more important is healing a whole man, is, is what Jesus is saying. And again, you see the, the, the brilliance of Jesus in this answer right here because he's doing two things. One, he's, he's, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of their accusation against him since they, again, technically break the Sabbath all the time by circumcising babies. But two, Jesus is showcasing 
his own authority, his own priority over the law of Moses. Circumcision, he points out, predates the law of Moses. It's from the fathers, he said. That fathers there meaning uh, the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is the one who received circumcision from the Lord and was told to start doing this to him and all his offspring. And this was, you know, hundreds of years before Moses. So it gets priority, even over the Sabbath. So, can you guess who even predates the patriarchs? Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus will say at the end of the next chapter. Before Abraham was, I am. Before the law of Moses, before the circumcision, before any of the ones that, you know, you guys call the fathers, the patriarchs, had even taken their first breath, I am. So what I do, Jesus, the eternal one, what Jesus does has highest authority over everything. Don't trust your own judgment. Instead, defer to the judgment of Jesus. That's his point here. Which actually he says outright in the next breath, the final verse of our passage, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. By now, I hope that you've seen there's really only one way to do this. And it's not by looking inward. It's really the final warning that's, that's worth giving right here is don't follow your heart when it comes to making judgments about right and wrong. That word um, appearances right there. It could also be translated sight. It's actually the same word, um, the Greek root that we get our word um, optics from or optician. It's opsis in the Greek, sight. So what Jesus is warning about here is the kind of snap or intuitive judgments we can make when we see something and we make a judgment. Seeing something and then following your intuition about it. Don't do that kind of judgment, Jesus is saying. That does not lead to just or right judgment. It it, it never will. And I think of all the warnings in our passage, this is the one that we need most urgently right now to hear in our culture. Because I think this is the big one for our day. Follow your heart. I mean, that could just be the, uh, the slogan of the age in a lot of ways, right? Follow your heart. Not just when it comes to, to choosing a romantic partner or to, to choosing a career, but for discerning right and wrong, just, just and unjust. The assumption is we have all we need within ourselves to do that. Look inward as if there's you know, some good and pure light inside each one of us that if we could just think about it long enough or or feel it well enough, it would always guide us in the right direction. That is not a biblical teaching. Uh, My wife and I actually saw a movie just um, last week where at the the very end, one of the main characters is kind of facing this uh, moral dilemma. She's uh, inherited a bunch of money and she doesn't really know what she ought to do with it or what sort of people she ought to help with it. And she's, you know, kind of venting about this to another character. And, the, and, and, and he says to her, he says, I'm not worried that you'll do the right thing to do because you always follow your heart. Keep following your heart. You'll do the right thing. I mean, that could just sum up really the moral philosophy of our age. Follow your heart. The words of Jesus right here are the direct opposite of that advice. 
Do not judge by impressions. Do not judge by what you see and then what you feel. Instead, judge with right judgment. The heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately wicked. That's what we read back from the, pro- the prophet Jeremiah. Who can know it, he asks. Your heart is not trustworthy, according to the Bible. Your heart is not pure. Your heart is not going to lead you in the way that is right and, and toward what is life. Your heart is always going to lead you into the way of your own sinful desires. This is why Jesus commands in utmost clarity right here, we should not judge by sight. Instead, we must judge with a judgment that is outside of ourselves. We must judge with a judgment that is objectively right or objectively wrong, apart from our perception of it. A judgment that can come from Jesus and Jesus alone, our prophet. Don't trust your own judgment. Instead, defer to the judgment of Jesus. Because ultimately, he is the only judge that gives us any reason to hope. There's a paradox in this. A, a beautiful paradox that I think becomes so clear when we look at this passage right here in light of the larger story of the Gospel of John. Because, again, if you look at this, this, this passage right here on its own, apart from the rest of the story, there's no hope for any of us. None of us. I mean, you hear these words of Jesus the judge, and then you look at your own heart honestly— you know where you stand. You know what you deserve. As, as Jesus himself says, the world cannot hate you, that's the disciples, but it hates me because I testify about it, the world, that its works are evil. This, I mean, that is the verdict of Jesus the judge when it looks at us, we who are in this world, guilty. Evil, that is what our works are. Every single person in this, this fallen world transgresses the good law of God. You know, every single person, if we did somehow have that magic mirror that we could really look in and, and, and see our hearts, all, all we would see is rot and deception and selfishness. Every single person, when we are judged by God's righteous standard, I mean, we are guilty of a multitude of sins, and for these sins, we deserve death. The beautiful paradox of the Gospel of John is this. In Jesus, death is not what we receive. What we see so clearly in John is that, yes, Jesus is our judge, capital J. But Jesus is also the one who takes our judgment. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. A judge who just pronounces that guilty verdict, you're condemned. That's not why God sent Jesus. But in order that the world, that same evil, twisted, vile world who is in opposition to God, all of us, that the world might be saved through him. The judge who takes our judgment. I mean, this, is, this is why we need Jesus so badly. Not just to show us uh, what is right and, and what is wrong, and then so we, then we can see all the wrong that we've done and, and feel bad about it. No, Jesus has told us those things so that we might look to him to save us from the wrong that, that we have done and to save us for all the right that we can then do when we are transformed by him and empowered by his Holy Spirit. The only way this can happen is at the cross. 
everything in John right now, it's like a ball rolling downhill towards, towards the cross. And when we get there, what we see is the crucifixion of Jesus is the most vivid expression ever possible of God's verdict of humanity, guilty. That's what we see at the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression that, yes, our works are evil, that, that yes, our sin must be punished, that every single person here and everywhere else deserves nothing but judgment and death for what we've done. But the cross is also where Jesus absorbs every last bit of that judgment and death in our place. Yes, the cross says Jesus is the judge. And yes, the cross says he has taken our judgment. That is the beautiful paradox. This is why we not only defer to Jesus and listen to him, but we love him because he has first loved us all the way to the cross. Pray with me, please. Father, we, the only reason we have any courage to come before you is because we know that in your sight, we have been given the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. That through his work on the cross, he has cleansed us. And in your sight, we are pure and holy. We come boldly before the throne of grace. May you receive our worship now as an expression of heartfelt gratitude for what you have done for us and what you will do for all of those who have open hearts to receive it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.